Well, some of you are like me, you're over 50, and uh, you may recognize uh, the title that I've given to this sermon uh, comes from that 1965 movie, The Sound of Music. Remember that? It was, of course, uh, one that I kind of grew up on because it was uh, distributed about that time when I was a young boy. And uh, it's based on a true story, you may know, of a free-spirited young Austrian woman named Maria. And she is studying to become a nun, and uh, she is sent in God's providence to uh, be the governess of seven children of a widower named Captain George von Tropp. And, uh, of course, as the story unfolds, she and the captain fall in love, they marry, and the new family, they become the von Trapp family singers. And as God would have it, it would be their doorway to escape the grip of Nazi Germany. Maybe you remember some of the words from some of the songs, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper, copper kettles and warm West Michigan woolen mittens brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, what do I do? I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so bad. Tonight, I'm preaching from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and the Apostle Paul has very good reasons to feel sad. Just to put the text within its larger context, on the one hand, he himself is suffering in prison for preaching the gospel, and on the other hand, the beloved church in Philippi that he planted is very vulnerable because there is evil coming at them from the outside, and there's also evil welling up within them from the inside. There are attacks from the outside. There is conflict on the inside. Paul has good reasons to be sad. Even so, the Apostle Paul has much better, much weightier reasons to be glad. Some of you have been in my office, and I tell you, it's, uh, it's probably the, the illustration that I make use of the most, because in one conversation, one of you bought me a little children's scale. Now, it doesn't really kind of fit with the 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 look of the office, so I put it over in the corner on the very top of my shelf, but I can promise you, whenever I'm talking to someone, I can always see that scale in the top right-hand corner because it reminds me of this very important principle. Paul has good reasons to be sad, but Paul has weightier, far more glorious, much better reasons to be glad. It is a skill in the Christian life that is essential. We outweigh the hard with the counterweights 
of God's promises. And that's what Paul does throughout this letter, but especially at the very beginning. He outweighs the hard and the bad by recalling and believing and praying the good. Let me read for us Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And by the way, I think this might be the last sermon that I'm able to preach from Philippians. As you can see, it's gotten a lot of wear and tear, and I can barely read it, so bear with me. One of my favorite books with a few of my favorite things. I thank God, my God, and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness." how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so grateful that in Your wisdom and love, You called Cindy and me to West Michigan and to Harvest Church. And I thank you for the opportunity to preach this passage to these, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable me to preach a Bible-shaped word in a Bible-shaped way, truth spoken in love. And I pray Holy Spirit, that you would not only open my mouth, but that you would also open our ears to receive the word implanted that is able to save and sanctify our soul. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This being my last opportunity to bring God's Word to you, I'd like to share a few of my favorite things. 
themes that I have learned to love as set forth and practiced by the Apostle Paul and themes that I wish to convey to you. Together, I want us to watch Paul and learn from a few of his and a few of my favorite things. First, watch him consider the past and find cause for joyful gratitude, verses 3 through 6. Secondly, watch him consider the present and find cause for fervent affection, verses 7 and 8. And finally, watch him consider your future and find cause for focused petition, verses 9, 10, and 11. Let's consider a few of these favorite things. First, watch Paul consider the past and find cause for joyful gratitude. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. There is an intensity here. There is a redundancy here. There is an all-inclusiveness here. Do you hear it? There's a passion born of the Spirit, joyful gratitude. Why? Two reasons. First of all, joyful thanksgiving because of their work of faith. Notice what the text says, because of your partnership in the gospel. The gospel, against the backdrop of the bad news, that sin living in me and sin living in you will destroy like a hurricane, unless the Spirit of the living God works secretly and powerfully and turns us inside out and upside down to see and love Jesus Christ and to trust Him. Into your hands I commit my spirit, faithful God, The good news against the backdrop of the bad news is that God in Christ does just this. He renews, He restores your soul. But Paul speaks of a partnership in the gospel. This word translated partnership is a word commonly translated as fellowship. It's the Greek term koinonia that perhaps you've heard before, fellowship. But here, the Apostle Paul speaks of a partnership. In modern use, fellowship had come to mean warm friendship with believers. But in the first century, and in Paul's usage here, koinonia, it has a much deeper meeting. In that day, it had commercial overtones. If Jack and Jill went up the hill and bought a boat to start a fishing business, they have entered into a fellowship, a partnership. Both Jack and Jill have put their savings into the fishing boat. Why? Because they share a vision 
that gets the business on its feet. It's sacrificial. They're all in. This is the essence of a partnership. The heart of true fellowship is this sacrificial conformity to a shared vision. But the heart of true Christian fellowship is the self-sacrificing conformity to advancing the gospel. Warm friendship may be a part of it, but it's so much more. It's a shared vision leading to a commitment and sacrifice that's at the heart of it. So Paul considers the past, and he finds cause for joyful gratitude. He sees the Philippians, did you notice, from the first day until now. They've been rolling up their sleeves and working with Paul to advance the gospel and their initial care and their continued witness and their persevering prayers and their sending him gifts, not once, but more than that, all testifying that they are all in. They're partners in the gospel, self-sacrificing, shared vision. And as I thought about preaching, which text, I thought about these words. Because I think my God, in all my remembrance of you. Harvest Church. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day, September 15th, 2020, until now. I remember Cindy and I driving up from North Carolina, two-day trip. I think it was September 13th, and we pull into our Airbnb, and there's John and Doreen Davies, our first new friends, welcoming us, partners in the gospel. And then we open up the pantry, and Don and Sue McCroy have gotten me some Hudsonville ice cream, and the pantry is stocked. Gifts, partners in the gospel. And then Ryan Wiersma and his family, they outfit me. I had never seen anything, not a shovel like this, not a, not a window cleaner like this, but boy, was I outfitted for West Michigan winter. Support down-to-earth, practical, partnership in the gospel. Hospitality. In my 36 years of ministry, I have never, ever experienced so much hospitality, Cindy and I. We have been invited into your homes more than the 36 years in all of our ministry. You have welcomed us. You have loved us. Christmas comes, and there's this gift. What a surprise for the pastors. Cards written on special occasions, words spoken when I'm low and when I need 
a constructive word of hope, to kindle a heart of faith. You did it. And then there's Ken Vandermullen. Some of you don't know this, but Ken serves on the Ministerial Care Committee for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I promise you, I have never, ever felt so cared for by a committee of a denomination. And Ken steps in my office. We've had multiple conversations, and in a way that only Ken can do. Just, brother, we want to be a blessing. Well, brother, you have been a blessing. We've partnered on Sundays. We, nobody sings like Harvest Church. And I wish that you could join me up here where the acoustics are even better than they are out there to be a part of this choir, partnering in the gospel, advancing the gospel in our own hearts and into this community, and then to serve with my fellow pastors and elders and the deacons Good, good men. What a privilege to work alongside each of them. And then those, so many of you have, have entrusted me with the hard things in your life, and we've talked in my office, and, and I thank God in all my remembrance of you because I have seen you do some very courageous things in vulnerable places. You have taken steps of faith to move into the hard, and God has been honored, and people have been helped. I treasure this partnership. And then my love and truth counseling ministry team. We've broken new ground. These men and women have done things that they never, ever could believe they would have done, and to see them step out and trust God for impossible things. What a privilege I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, making every prayer of mine with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. But we're just getting started. Paul is thankful, joyfully, because of their work of faith. But secondly, Paul gives joyful thanks because of God's work of grace. Notice what the text says. And I am sure this. Do you hear the confidence there? You know, if you were in a hurry, you'd skate right over it. The Apostle Paul is confident in the work of the Spirit. I am sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul's shift in focus from their work of faith to God's work of grace. The fruit of their working is from the root of God's working. Their partnership in the gospel is their working out of the grace that God is working in. And it is an effective grace. It does things. It changes hearts and thoughts, and wants, and words, and behaviors. To see as Jesus sees, and to speak as Jesus speaks, and to love as Jesus loves. And notice Paul's confidence in God's effective grace. I am sure of this. 
He sees the link. He connects the dots. On the one hand, there is this past grace. On the other hand, there is this future grace. But running between these two endpoints is this indestructible line called present grace that is working and effective. And he employs the verb. It's translated here by the English Standard Version, bring it to completion. Because Paul knows the end is in the beginning. The oak tree is in the acorn. The seed of grace that God plants in you is a living seed that is growing inescapably toward its full and completed flower. So, for example, he'll say in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, one of the most important passages in all of Scripture to help us understand the, the two sides of sanctification, our role, the Spirit's role. Work out your own salvation, not work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? For it is God who works in you both to give you the willing and to enable you to do the doing for His good pleasure. Do you see it? Paul considers the past and he finds cause for joyful gratitude because he knows the gospel is not God begins the good work and then turns it over to you to complete it. No, the gospel is God begins the work, He continues the good work, and God finishes the work. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment just to tell you, again, one of my favorite things. I told you what Paul is saying, but I want you to see what Paul is doing with what Paul is saying. He's modeling. He's showing us what we're called to be and do for each other. He sees in a person, in a believer, good evidence of the Spirit, and when he sees it, he speaks it. He affirms the work of the Spirit to the person in front of him. And he has sure confidence in the Spirit. And he doesn't keep it silent, but he speaks it. Why? Because Paul knows that you and I get turned inside and down, and we can't see it. We forget our identity. We can see a lot that is wrong with us. Oh, I can see a lot that is wrong with me. But I need people around me, and you do too, that when they see some small evidence of the Spirit working in you, they not only see it, but they speak it. Affirmation. Are you a sinner? Of course. That is your deepest problem. Are you a sufferer? Absolutely. Hard things happening to you, but that's not the full picture. You are also a saint in Christ Jesus, and He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
And so when you see the good, when you see evidence of the Spirit in someone's life, would you join me and speak it and encourage? Because we all need it. This is one of my favorite things. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Secondly, Paul not only looks to the past and finds cause for joyful gratitude, but watch Paul consider the present and find cause for fervent affection. Verses 7 and 8, Paul looks to the present and he feels affection. Notice verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. In Paul's letters, he uses this word 23 times. This word that is translated, feel this way. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he uses the word 10 times. This is a very important theme threading throughout this letter. It signals a key theme throughout the letter, a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of having a certain mindset. Soon in chapter 2, Paul is going to command us all, if there is any affection in Christ Jesus, and there is, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of one mind. But here, as Paul often does in his opening paragraphs, he plants the seed of a theme that he's going to unpack throughout the letter. He models, like a good elder will do, what he commands. I hold you in my heart. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this is intense. This is going to make many of you a little uncomfortable. But this is one of my favorite things. And I want you to see it in the Apostle Paul. He's not a Stoic. He's not an academic. He's not a detached professional. There's not a refusal to be vulnerable. No. He uses strong language. He actually takes an oath. God is my witness. He uses the strongest word in Greek for this feeling of compassion. Verse 8, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I've told you before. I've got one more time to tell you. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, Reformed theologian, did a study on the emotional life of our Lord Jesus, and he found the most frequent revelation of the compassion of Jesus as a human being spread out all throughout the Gospels, more than any other revelation of, of his emotional life. Compassion was the most frequent. This is astounding. Christ fills Paul so that he is overflowing with the fruit of compassion. Christ is loving the Philippians in and through Paul. As one commentator put it, it is not Paul who lives within Paul, but it is Jesus Christ 
which is why Paul is not moved by the affection of Paul, but by the affection of Christ Jesus. Are you feeling a little uncomfortable? You know, in Presbyterian circles, we have a good and healthy concern for orthodoxy, right doctrine. We have a good and healthy concern for orthopraxy, right practice. But we tend to give less attention to this good and healthy concern for orthopathy. It is right for me to feel this way about you. My fundamental identity, no matter what region of the country I'm in, I live in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus lives in me. It is right for me to feel this way about my brothers and sisters in Christ. He opens wide his heart. He puts his affection on the table for all to see. Why? Why this fervent affection? A very personal reason. Did you notice? Because of their consistent work of love. He writes, you are all partakers, that is, fellow partners with me of literally the grace. Paul has just spoken about his partnership and their partnership in the gospel, verse 5. Paul and other letters, for example, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, often describes his ministry as the grace given to him. And so it is very likely that here Paul is referring to their personal identification with and their practical support of his ministry, including his suffering. And notice how he describes the grace in which they share, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's very likely, in fact, almost certain, that Paul is contrasting his imprisonment on the one hand in preaching the gospel with his being in prison for the gospel. It's as though Paul is saying, whether I am sitting in prison or whether I am serving outside these prison walls, you stand with me. Now think about that. It is one thing to be committed to someone when they are out there producing, right? They're getting the job done. They're defending and confirming the gospel. But it is another thing to be committed to a person when they are in here. At first glance, looking as though they're not getting anything done. But even there, Paul sees their commitment to him. Now, let me ask you, what a partnership. When you see someone partner with you like that, not just when you're 
you're out there getting the work done. But when you're in a very low place, and it would seem at first glance there's nothing good coming from you. When you see a person stick with you through thick and thin in a moment like that, don't you feel affection? That's what he's talking about. This is why he has this intensity, this fervent affection. Paul looks to the present and he finds cause for affection. And this is one of my favorite things. It is right for me to feel this way about you. God has given me an affection for you. I love you. It has been an honor to have a front row seat, to get to know you, to see you walk with Jesus. I'm going to miss that. It has been a real privilege. And the Spirit has worked in me. And I'll never forget it, a fervent affection for you. With Paul, I can honestly say, I hold you, Harvest Church, in my heart. And I take you with me to Birmingham. You've taught me a lot about life and faith and ministry. Would you make this one of your favorite things? If compassion is the affection most frequently attributed to our Lord Jesus, then would you make compassion the affection that you most frequently have for one another? Paul has looked to the past, and he's found cause for joyful gratitude. He's looked to the present, and he's found cause for fervent affection. But he closes... And let's watch him consider the future and find cause for focused petition. Verses 9 through 11. Paul, he's standing on tiptoe and he's looking down the corridors of time and he sees from a distance the day of Christ Jesus. And he makes a simple request. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Your love. Yes, your love for God, but in the context of Philippians, because they're having so much conflict, it's most likely that that's where the weight of this request is. I pray that your love for one another, love that seeks the benefit of the other, would grow more and more. You're doing well. Let's kick it up a notch. Let's excel still more by the Spirit. It's not a sudden fix, but it's a progressive growth. And notice, this is extremely important with these two ingredients, with knowledge and all discernment. 
As one commentator put it, it's as though God plants the seed of love. Some of you all with a garden can appreciate this. You plant the, the seedling, this living seed of love, and, and it's intended to grow up into maturity, but it needs, like a shoot, it needs to be guided by two stakes, real knowledge and all discernment. Now, when Paul prays for this knowledge and discernment, he has in view what he describes in other letters, a holy spiritual understanding. Most of my books in my office were published in Grand Rapids, Michigan. There's no shortage of information. Solid, sweet, good, reformed theology. And what Paul is talking about is not less than that, but it is so much more than that. I want you to grow in real knowledge and all discernment. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, one of his favorite illustrations. A man without the sense of taste can know that honey is sweet based on the reliable testimony of another person. But that's one kind of knowing. But if that person were to be miraculously given the sense of taste, he would know the very same thing. Honey is sweet. But he would know it in a much different way. A holy, spiritual, first-hand, personal, experiential knowing. Christ. That's what he's praying for. Not the academic, bookish, speculative kind of knowing, but the kind of knowing that he'll unpack later in Philippians chapter 3, I count all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing a person, not a doctrine. Doctrine is important, but it points to the person, not a relationship with a book. We love the book, but the book mediates a person. God reveals Christ in Scripture. It's about a relationship with a person. It's very personal. And there's a threefold purpose. Notice the purpose clauses. So that, why do I want your love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment? So that you may approve what is excellent. This ability to distinguish the higher, more important, most excellent things from the competing options. This verb that Paul uses, translated approve, it carries a double sense. It has two elements. On the one hand, it carries this notion of testing or inspecting to see whether something is genuine. But on the other hand, it carries the notion of approving or regarding something as valuable when, in fact, it really is seen to be genuine. 
In Paul's day, the verb was often used in connection with testing and approving gold. And so Paul is praying for a renewed mind, one that on the one hand can sift and spot God's will as the excellent, perfect gold that it is, but not only that, a renewed mind is able not only to sift and spot God's will as excellent, but also treasures and approves God's will as the excellent gold that it really is. John Piper puts it this way, we come to test and approve God's will as excellent, not by the power of logic. Don't misunderstand, it's not less than logic. Piper says, we come to test and approve God's will as excellent, not by the power of logic, but by the power of taste that the Spirit gives. Taste and see that the Lord is excellent. One of my heroes, Sinclair Ferguson, puts it this way. The result of the Spirit working with the Word of God to illumine and transform our thinking is the development of a godly instinct that operates in sometimes surprising ways. The revelation of Scripture becomes in a well-taught, Spirit-illumined believer so much a part of his or her mindset that the will of God frequently seems to become instinctively and even immediately clear just as whether a piece of music is well or badly played becomes immediately obvious to a well-disciplined musician. This is what Paul is praying for. That when we navigate life, when hard things are coming at us, and we're trying to figure out how to do life, how to live with one another, he's praying that our love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and wisdom and discernment in order that we might approve at that fork in the road what is, what is the excellent thing, the praiseworthy thing. Why? He continues, so that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure as goes the internal motive, blameless as goes the external behavior filled with the fruit of righteousness, both root and fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, the source, which is why God gets all the glory. This is one of my favorite things. It's what gets me so excited about the ministry of the Word and counseling ministry because when I see the Spirit turn on the lights in you and you see Jesus and you love Him, now that is like standing on holy ground. Aslan is on the move. He's working in you. He's changing you. It's one of my favorite things. Would you join me in making it one of your favorite things? Consider the past. Find cause for joyful gratitude. Consider the present. Find cause for fervent affection. 
And when you look into the future and you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll find cause for focused petition. These are a few of my favorite things, and it is my pleasure to commend them to you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Thank you for the honor of serving Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the privilege of serving in this place. And I pray, even as Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, I pray for this congregation that your love would abound still more and more with all knowledge and all discernment in order that my brothers and sisters in Christ may approve the things that are excellent and reject the things that are sour. And in so doing, they may grow up to be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through you, Lord Jesus, the source, the fountain. I ask your blessing on my brothers and sisters. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to stand with me as we close our worship.
now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.